This show is a proud member of the Nerdy Legion Podcast Network. Get more at nerdylegion.com. Enjoy the show! Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we are joined by Ben Kahn. Ben is the writer, creator of the current comic book series, Heavenly Blues, published by Scout Comics. He previously wrote and published a graphic novel, Shaman, and we're well, we're glad to have you with us tonight, Ben. Welcome. Um, glad to be here. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited for this. Before we get into the works themselves, I was just curious to let know a little bit about your path, your journey to comic book writing. How did you get started? Who were your, some of your influences, if you had any? Just anything you want to talk about is, is how you got to where so, you are today. My path is weird and out of order. Like if someone was to pitch my path as a movie, I'd be like, this pacing is goddamn nonsense. <laughs> so I started making web comics when I was 15 and started actually reading comics when I was 18. Uh, so I kind of first came out through like just doing like a little fun web comic, but then it really wasn't until college that I started reading like DC and Marvel and Image and Vertigo and Dark Horse. Um, and I completely fell in love with the medium in college. Um, just, ab- just, it just really became an absolute obsession. And it was during college that I decided I wanted to try to become a writer. And honestly, just that felt like a switch going off. And from there on, pretty much every decision I made is just like, well, how does this help me get closer to making comic books? So is comic books your um, only outlet for writing, or do you write for any other medium? Um, You know, I've written a few uh, television scripts in the past, uh, usually working with a writing partner on those, and those are fun, but comics are a truly, truly special medium to me. Uh, they, They are absolutely my medium of choice. It just feels like the medium I can accomplish the most, and the one that is, like from a storytelling perspective, just the absolute wealth of the in, infinite canvas of ideas and characters and stories and genres and settings that are attainable in comics versus other mediums. And also just from a practical standpoint, it seems like the medium that I could most um, easily or like within my uh, means go from I have an idea to I now have a finished product in my hands. So it's a special medium to me, but it also felt like a practical choice. On your web comics, I'm not that is something I'm not too familiar with. Yeah, uh, that's intentional. <laughs> yeah, that's really on purpose. Did you you did the writing, did you also do the artwork for it as well when you did So that? this get yeah, uh quote unquote artwork. Uh <laughs> Finger quotes the size of a mountain. Um, it was a sprite comic using the graphics from a Kingdom Hearts Game Boy game. Oh my gosh. So I've, someone like rip, took the Game Boy game and ripped every sprite sheet, every background, every character, and I, and like, and put them in like easily manipulatable like sheets. And I just took those from the internet and just made little comics out of those in Microsoft Paint. Clever. That's clever. I would have to say, but I, I can't take credit. It was like a style. It was 
a fairly prominent style of web comics for a hot minute in like the early 2000s. So I wasn't the first. There was like final comics that like bigger comics that had been done. Uh, so do you know uh, Atomic Robo? That comic. I have heard the name, but I'm not familiar with it. So that writer, he started out doing a web comic that was. Again, a sprite comic where he took the sprites from the first Final Fantasy game and added dialogue and backgrounds and made a web made a web comic out of it. So that, he actually did sprite started sprite comics too, and he was my big inspiration to start a web comic way back in the day. Um, and that was look, I was I made this comic between like I was fifteen when I started it. It was the mid two thousands. South Park and Chappelle show ruled the land. It was. It was teenage shock comedy, is what it was. Um, now, were they were they set in that same world that they the sprites came from, or did you no, just totally fuck, throw them out of context? Fuck no, completely out of context. I <laughs> I kept the names and stole the art and chucked out everything else. As it were, it was just like it was just a show about it was just a comic about like seven sociopaths on a Fox re- like Big Brother style reality show. <laughs> well, here at the Nerdy Legion, we don't use uh, Google. We use DuckDuckGo. So if we DuckDuckGo it, we're not going to find it when we search the interwebs. I'm perfectly okay with that. Because okay. the, tw- the early 2000s were a very different time than the late 2010s. Yes. Especially indeed. in terms of just how angry the internet will get at you. Absolutely. Well, that sounds great, though. I mean, everybody's got to start somewhere, and at least that got you what some that exposure. Gave me, oh, what that really gave me was, A, it taught me how to use Photoshop, which I have yet to have a single job where knowing Photoshop hasn't been a huge advantage. Right. Um, and B, just the fact that because it was stolen backgrounds and it was stolen character art, the only thing about this comic that was actually original was the dialogue. So for this comic to work, like, and I ended up doing it for like seven years and over 700 strips, um, the only way it worked, I had to put everything I had into the dialogue. And it really, the fact that the entire story, for the most part, had to be told through dialogue because it was just characters with no faces and pixelated poses standing across a room from each other. So the entire thing had to be dialogue-based. So it really without even meaning to, I think it just became such great training for just writing dialogue and writing different characters and figuring out dynamics and different voices and um, like comedy and like, and comedic timing. And I think those are the lessons I've been really able to carry into Shaman and Heavenly Blues. Oh, so, so you kind of built how to do dialogue. And then once you've got that nailed down, because in your head, you know how to, you're laying out the page and all that, so you don't have to script that. And so now when you're doing comics, you know how to do the dialogue, and you've, the next step was learning how to script it such that your artist can capture the, what you're picturing for your characters? Oh, yeah. And not just that, but just thing on like such a wider canvas. I mean, with the webcomic, again, like 700 strips, I'm going to say 600 of them were literally four panels of two characters standing across from each other, having just back and forth dialogue. And to go from that being my limit to just, you know, just a cavalcade of the, of the impossible. I'm like, skeletons and monsters and everybody's teleporting. Oh, and we got to do five period pieces. Five period pieces in one story. 
like God. I, it's 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 crack. I can't get <laughs> enough of it. I'm like, wait, I can do this? Okay, well, I got to do that. Like any, like all the random stuff that's been in my head. It's like, yeah, just do it, do it. Nothing's stopping you. Go for it. And so just learning how to be completely unleashed while restraining myself to the point where I can actually finish a script. But just the sense of going from being so limited into what a comic could be to having what really just feels like infinity at my fingertips. Excellent. Well, you said you started reading comics at 18 Marvel and DC image. What were some of the, do you remember some of the titles? I mean, the first things you read and. Oh, absolutely. I can tell you exactly what got me into reading into like what my first books were. Uh, my first superhero title was Runaways. Um, and ex-girlfriend in high school had introduced that to me, and like I read the trades of that early. But then what got me into a store reading monthly uh, was Jeff John's Green Lantern and Grant Morrison's Batman and Robin. Oh, two good ones. Very good ones. I, I yeah, love the, Morrison's Batman and Robin. Yeah, and Jeff John's Green Lantern, I came in like right when they were like, the buildup for Blackest Night was like going into full pitch. So my first ever big comic event was Blackest Night. And honestly, I don't think anything has ever quite matched that for me. Maybe Secret Wars. Now, was that, be- was that before or after the, the War of Light? Or that, or the, where they, because I'll say you came into it after they already had all the different colors of the spectrum. So when I came into it, I came into it during War of Light. I came in, like, right after Sinestro Corps War had ended, is when I started, like, reading monthly. Okay. Right. That's when he really expanded the the characters and the, this just the whole Green Lantern uh, universe there. So, yeah, that was a great time to come in. Yeah, like, I think the first appearance of the Blue Lanterns was the first issue I, like, picked, single issue, like, I just picked up in the store. It was like, I'm just going to dive in. So, and then... Because there were so many trades to read back then, what really got me, and I already loved the DC Universe just from Batman the Animated Series and the Justice League cartoons and, you know, the two-thirds of the Dark Knight trilogy had come out at this point. But what really got me into, especially the comics version of the DC Universe as this whole giant place was uh, 52. So Jeff Johns, Grant Morrison, Mark Waid, and Greg Rucka being given free reign for 52 issues with B and C list characters that they could do with whatever they want. I mean, God, what a dream team that has never been replicated that series. Um, So it's 52, but also um, a ton of like old school vertigo stuff. So obviously I had, you know, Sandman, uh, Invisibles, Preacher, Why the Last Man, Watchmen. I pretty much looked at my college years and was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to take the classes I got to take, whatever, whatever. My real education is in co- this, is in comic books, the medium, the history of them, and how to make them. Excellent. Okay, so while, you, so while you're in college, were you taking writing writing classes? Um, oh, yeah, no. I mean, I sw- maybe pointing yourself towards this? Oh, absolutely. Like, I switched my major to English, took every fiction writing course I could find, and spent the entire time just writing stories that I wanted to do potentially as comics and just figured, well, let me just work on them and develop them on school time. Kill two birds, one stone. 
Everyone else, I, I lived in a frat house. Everyone else was like a business or a science or an engineering major. We get to finals. Everyone's freaking out, pulling their hair out. I'm just chilling. They're like, don't you have a final pay, like, paper? I'm like, I finished it. The mummy had sex with the vampire. Then he robbed her and jumped out the window. <laughs> Done. I'm good. Oh, that's excellent. And I loved that Matt Morrison's Batman and Robin. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong Batman fan. Oh, yeah. I'm like 11 I years have... old. And, and that, especially with Dick Grayson as Batman, is one of my favorite runs. I have a lot. I have a lot of affection for Dick Grayson as Batman, especially when he's paired up with Damian Wayne. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was a good. There, there will run. always be a very large place for that run in my comics loving heart. Well, moving on to your own work. Shaman was your first thing you've published and you that was you actually financed that through a Kickstarter campaign. Am I correct on that? Yeah, the printing uh for yeah, the printing for that was done through Kickstarter. So I funded the actual making of the art of the book. Um and then the and then to I used Kickstarter to fund the production. Uh to fund the printing. So the Kickstarter was that was that was a roller coaster of experience. I know everyone that does a Kickstarter will say that, but it just is. Um, there's something unique and empowering. Uh, there's something you said for when everyone tells you no, and you just go like, "F it, I'm just going to put it out there and try to make this thing real, no matter what." And there's this something empowering to just being able to say like, "Wow, even when every publisher said no, I still made this book." Uh, though when I say like every publisher said no, I do want to say like. Shaman came out in 2015, and I know that feels so short ago, but really, the I say this a lot, the publishing landscape has changed very, like dramatically in just two years. And when I was pitching Heavenly Blues, like there's a whole crop of publishers out there now that's helping like bringing new writers and, and artists and new creatives to the fore that just did not exist when Shaman was being pitched. So you look at between 2015 and 2017, you have Scout, you have Black Mask, you have Vault, you have Alterna, you have Lion Forge, just this whole, this whole tier of publishing that did not exist 24 months ago. Yeah. And we've, those are two, those are all those publishers you're named. We're, we're, Dennis and I are reading works from all of those and from others. And yeah, it's really amazing what, how that has blossomed in the last two, two years. Yeah, it's different now than it was. I I kind of grew up in the in the eighties and the early nineties with comics, and the independents weren't anywhere near like the scope and the quality and just the variety that they are now. And it, it's so interesting to me how the industry changed the match because based off the publishing preferences of this whole new crop of publishers, you're seeing so many great and what's kind of becoming almost the standard format in indie in indie books is you're kind of seeing the rise of the four issue miniseries. And I feel like, again, you go back to like late two thousands, like you think you look like, Oh, five, six issues to a trade. And now for indie books, it's like four is almost the standard for a very large, uh, portion of books coming out right now. Well, is, is that changing you think the comic industry from like a monthly format to where you got to keep up the continuity you got to keep interesting stories um you're having new writers that are changing things and then people jump on and jump off uh i know that's one of the things we've been discussing like like i think valiant's doing that now and 
I think DC came out with something like, not too long ago. They were going to do like books or DC miniseries did, independent yeah. of the main continuity. Yeah, DC did a really cool three-part Dead Man series that I highly recommend. It's like Dead Man in a gothic romance and had a real cool old-school vertigo horror feeling to it that I really dug. Um, I forget the exact name of it, but it's the most recent Dead Man work, and it's real good. Um, I think the reason you started to see the shift to four issues is I think How Men is uh, a combination of issue-to-issue attrition and trade sales versus like the importance of trade sales. So I think what you have is um, a lot, a lot, a lot of these indies really only make like make a profit or become true successes uh, when the trade is out. And I think you when you get to a with the issue to issue just attrition, maybe the sales for five and six are no longer seen as, that you would get from issues five or six. Are worth it. It's just seen. It might be seen as a poor investment when that extra content doesn't increase trade sales and, in fact, increases print costs. So you might feel like four issues is the most. So there, I think there might be a feeling that four issues is the most you can do uh, for the single issues to be worthwhile, while still have uh, with the trade seen as the primary revenue driver. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In- like I know two of my favorite publishers, Fanagraphics and Drawn and Quarterly, they neither of those publishers do much in the way of monthly comics. Most of what they release are are, are complete graphic novels, complete collections. And it seems like and I've wondered if that is kind of where the industry is moving slowly towards. It's it's hard it's hard to say. Uh there's a strong argument. I think there is a strong argument to be made for certain kinds of stories to be done as like trade only or as graphic novels. And you can still put them through regular comic book shops, but really aggressively court like bookstores. Um, and, but then the, on the flip side of that, but the real flip side, and that kind of makes sense from a revenue perspective, but on the flip side, um, your marketing window becomes so much shorter and what you because think about if you just have one trade come out you've got a week like a week maybe like a month let's say bj say a month you have where you can go like all out and really push this thing like crazy and just be in the spotlight be in like people's attention versus a monthly series where again say it's four issues in a trade that's six months of being in the spotlight of doing interviews of doing reviews of having previews of having new art new like new solicitations um and also just even if it's not selling great in the stores how much there's an amount of awareness and momentum that just being on those shelves may accrue that is very difficult if not impossible to truly quantify so It's one of the, so there's no easy answers and it makes sense to switch to a trade only model. Um, But at the same time, you do have to balance it with this massive loss in marketing opportunity. Interesting. I had not thought of that. 
So from a writer standpoint, is it easier to do the four issue, six issue stories than the ongoing because you you could close the story or end the story instead of having to just keep it going? I'd say it's easier to do miniseries because they're less heartbreaking. <laughs> um, let me put it this way. I have so I tried to leave Shaman on a, I tried to leave Shaman on a fairly satisfying ending point i could easily do nine more volumes of shaman and it hurts thinking about how much more i need to do that i may never that i'll probably never get to do to make these character arcs and the story of the world and the characters truly complete and that sucks versus heavenly blues where you know i actually i have some ideas for sequels but they would be more sequels than continuations where it is more like, you know what? I got an idea for this story. I'm going to come in. It's going to be six issues, beginning, middle, and end. And at the end of issue six, I'm going to put my pen down and be like, yeah, story done. I did it. Nice. So Shaman, so it was that wasn't released as any, any single issues. That was just like a collection? That right? was physically, it was released as a collection, uh, digitally, it was released in single issues on Comixology. Okay. Oh, so you are on Comixology, so you're not just getting printed through Scout. Um, Shaman is on Comixology. Uh, we're, there's we're current there's currently work to try to getting the Scout comics on Comixology, uh, but that's above my pay grade. <laughs> I, I know. I know Scout. I know it's happening. I have no idea when. Okay. Interesting. All right. So, so I'm not that familiar with Shaman, and I'm pretty sure a bunch of our listeners aren't. So what, can you give us the quick synopsis that's going to like make me run out and have to order it tonight? Yeah. So pretty much Shaman is uh, Rick and Morty meets John Constantine, and it's the story <laughs> of a necromancer and his teenage sorceress daughter – Really just go on crazy, wacky, fucked up, mystical adventures, bringing dead people back to life and pissing off every superhero they meet along the way. Um, they fight a teleporting skeleton. At one point, they're zombies versus astronauts. Uh, the zombies are the good guys. And in one issue, they bring Babe Ruth back to life to fight the real green monster. <laughs> <laughs> so... Pretty much just a uh, formulaic. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing with that. That yeah, sounds yeah, really I mean, interesting. Pretty, that sounds yeah, it's like pretty standard humdrum, very low key adventures. Yeah, <laughs> okay. and, and the same art and, and the same artist that's doing Heavenly Blues. Yep, that's right. That was uh, our first collaboration together, me and Bruno. Uh, and then we liked working together so much on Shaman that pretty much the day it was finished, I asked him to work with me on Heavenly Blues. Okay, uh, how did you meet Hidalgo? Uh, so the publisher for uh, Shaman, Locust Moon Press, um, actually connected us together. Uh, Locust Moon had done an anthology of Dark Horse called Once Upon a Time Machine. Uh, and we kind of looked at the artists that worked on that anthology to see who might be uh, a good fit for kind of the offbeat um, pop feel of the story. And Bruno's art kind of jumped out. Um, and we reached out and we agreed. And it's been a great experience. Uh, when we did Shaman, uh, because he's uh, native to Spain and lives in Barcelona, uh, the language barrier was a issue with um, us. So we only actually communicated through email. Uh, that was the only way we could communicate was through email when working on Shaman. 
But um, as we've worked together, the language barrier has become less of an issue. So we still haven't met face to face, but we instant message each other now a lot. So I think, I think in general, I think I would like to think that I may be blowing smoke up my own ass, but I would like to think that if you look at Shaman and Heavenly Blues and as different and as much as I love both of those, I think you could see, I hope you would see me develop as a writer, Bruno develop as an artist, and the two of us um, develop as a team working together. I think so. I mean, I've not, quite frankly, I haven't had the occasion to read Shaman yet, uh, so I'm not can't speak to it very much but the writing i know in heavenly blues first thing i thought the word that came to me was intelligent this is intelligent writing and uh, thank you and yeah, i just i love the you know just some of the, the phrasing that you use and uh it's well, just, every, every character has a different voice i have to spend a lot of time thinking about isaiah's dialogue because he's way cooler than i am so I didn't think, like, what would I say if I was a way cooler person than I am? <laughs> yeah, and I guess that's what people don't realize what's so difficult about writing is not putting the same voice and your voice into all the characters and making them different. I'd say in Heavenly Blues, I think the characters that speak with the closest to my voice is death is Aaron first and coin counter to a much lesser degree, but still there a good chunk of the time. Isaiah, Hideki, and Amunet have, or Isaiah's got a very just, God, he's just so cool. um, So I try to like, so I always try to think about ways to just be, and it's a good challenge with him because, Whenever I'm writing a line and I look at it and it's just like, and all it's doing is conveying information or moving the plot along, I just have to like kind of whip myself into shape and just be like, how can I do this while also just showing flair and flavor and a theatricality that to the character comes as natural as breathing? What kind of was the genesis of this whole story about Heavenly Blues? How'd you get, you know, the... The concept. So the basic concept came from there's an Irish proverb, uh, may you be in heaven half an hour before the devil knows you're dead. And the first genesis of the idea was based off that phrase. I was thinking like, oh, what if you had half an hour to break into heaven and then the devil comes after you? And so it very much moved away from that. But that was the first kernel of, what if there was a heist story in the afterlife? So that was where it started. And then it just kind of morphed into this whole thing because the afterlife has always been a concept that has baffled and interested me uh, because it so rarely makes any goddamn sense. So really what it was like, it was just kind of having this, Oh, thieves in hell, like rob a heaven, that feels like a strong elevator pitch. And then just using that as a springboard to create a version of heaven and hell that I've wanted to do for so long and create a version that really answers all my questions about how any of this stuff fucking works and also try to make a vision of the afterlife that feels like, for lack of a better word, 
a living place of culture and a city and a world outside just the goddamn torture dimension. Oh, that was one of the things that, that I really struck me, especially in the first issue, the first few pages, uh, you know, the, the guy in the office that's shot and goes to hell. And, you know, the scene where um, Isaiah is pouring the molten gold on him in the pit. And there's this kind of a dialogue. And it's like, and then Aaron comes in and they're talking about torture, torment. And, you know, they give the, let's talk about all of this torture and torment. This has nothing to do with retribution or paying for, really for the sins. It's just, we're doing this just because we can. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, absolutely. That was just because the fuck you and the fuck else am I going to do? It's almost like rookie hazing. Oh, it's it's absolutely rookie hazing. And the idea that they're just tortured until they can't feel pain is actually something that's going to come up uh, and be plot like several times throughout the plot. That is that is one of the tricks up their sleeves is just the fact that they're going up against people in heaven and they've gone through this absolute unending nightmarish torture until they've reached the place that none of nobody else in the afterlife that who hasn't gone through that can understand. Yeah. And I kind of like how you, you set it up. Like Jay was mentioning, like in the first few pages, I mean, the first pages are, you know, it's just some, some guy, I guess there's a disgruntled worker. He comes in, shoots him and kills him. And he starts like, he's, you know, no fault of his own. He's sitting there working, minding his own business, gets killed. And he's kind of floating up to heaven. Then, all of a sudden, he's in hell, and you kind of go through the dialogue, and it's almost like uh, you don't know what he did to deserve to be there. He doesn't really know, and you get to know the characters, and it's 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 almost like humans are so imperfect, they're going to end up in hell anyway. In the first draft of the script, it did go into more detail um, about what that guy did. Uh, in the first draft, he was an embezzler. Like, kind of just a scummy Wall Street type guy. But what it came down to was, do I really want to spend valuable panel space characterizing a character that is never going to show up again after page four? Uh, well, exactly. And also, again, uh, sorry. I kind of like it like this. You I, don't know what he did. I agree. And I think it just speaks to, like, kind of a cynical nature of humans, which, yeah. Um, but also, I think he can become more of a blank slate and really becomes a better, the unknowing, the kind of that his backstory is unknown makes him a better foil for Isaiah to kind of imprint his personality on. And I think it helps make Isaiah's introduction a little bit stronger. Very good. So how many issues is this planned? Do you know, I'm, I'm probably, is it, did you say six issues? Is yep. It's going to be six issues. Uh, I just got the cover in for issue six yesterday and, oh, I am excited to release that online once I can. I'll it feels good it. having something that I can't show. Oh yeah, I'm sure it does. Like I want to, like I want to, but I can't, but it feels good that I can't. It feels like, Ooh, I've gotten to the point where I can't show stuff. Like that feels like a milestone. Yes, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think uh, you've got three issues that are out. Uh, two that are out. Uh, the third comes out in two weeks, so it comes out in the on the twenty seventh. On oh, okay. September twenty seventh is the third one, where you learn the backstory of uh, the group's drug addicted ninja Hideki Awada. <laughs> uh, 
Fun fact about Hideki, he is named after famous New York Yankee designated hitter Hideki Matsui. 2009 World Series MVP, baby. Go Yanks! <laughs> I didn't know that, and I'm a pretty good baseball fan, too. I, I am, too, and I didn't catch that. Only designated hitter to ever be awarded ML uh, World Series MVP. Nice. <laughs> nice. Think hey, about uh, Think about how he had to hit. He didn't, even, he didn't even play half the games in the series, and they're still like, you were the best. <laughs> and he was. He, sorry. I've got wildly off topic there. No, no. Everything's fair game here. So I don't know if this gives anything away, and it's not that I'm wanting for answers straight up for why, but I find it interesting, and I I can't remember if it's now in issue two, but I know they mentioned the Egyptians in issue one. And it's the comment where heaven and hell were built on what the Egyptians built before. I find that intriguing. And I don't want to give anything away or, or, or whatever, but oh, oh no, to what's, me that what's was just, Well, to me that's just history. Uh, so there's no heaven and hell until you know until um, Christianity, Juda- Judaism, and the Egyptians were beforehand, so they had they didn't have a hell, so it was just yeah. The idea the idea is like there was like where the angels and there was like where the angels were all and demons were all hanging out. Then the Egyptians actually made like the land of the dead, and then Christianity came around, and the angels and demons were like, "Well, let's just take over this place." So just the idea that like there are religions older than the Christian conception of heaven and hell. So if this afterlife is real, why aren't any of the other afterlifes real? And just try to give like, if I'm giving credence to this interpretation. Let me also try to like give Koreans to another interpretation and marry them together a little bit and give kind of like and kind of in that give like mysticalism to chronological history was the idea of just showing and like since there are religions older than Christianity like and Judaism like show an afterlife older than when heaven and hell could have existed. Oh, so we may see some uh, Greek, Roman. I'm trying to think of some others, but okay, I see what you're. Yeah, okay, I see what you're saying, and this kind of, you know, you're not, you won't, but you could. You could. Well, this kind of reminds me of my uh, Dungeons and Dragons days when all the mythologies had their own different planes that you could travel to. Your your afterworlds. And that was also the idea of, especially in issue two, where you get to explore a lot of, where you get to see so many different parts of hell. I wanted to give the indication and exactly like let readers imagine and view like an afterlife so much bigger than what they're seeing and make it vivid enough that they can give detail to parts they that aren't even in it and they could think about how it would fit in into this carved up sewn together jigsaw of a city that is hell in this world yeah and the occupants are the ones that become the torturers of the new entrants as they come. So I think what, because the comment was made that Aaron had first uh, tortured Isaiah when he first came, and now he's graduated up to where he does it for the newcomers. And exactly. it's, it's something that progresses uh, where the damned become the ones that do the damning. Oh, yeah. And I think, again, that just speaks to, like you said, it's hazing. Like, you go through hazing and you hated it and you despised every second of it, and yet you get it gets to be your turn the next time and you get it then and it becomes some, and like you can't help yourself. So I kind of wanted to show just like, especially 
with the lack of purpose. That was a big thing that like, to me, that's what makes hell torture. Isn't the torture. It's the lack of meaning and purpose. So really just showing just like how, how, how just base it without any kind of real meaning and purpose, just how wanton acts of pain and violence is just whatever. It's not like there's anything on TV tonight. Yeah, I'm just fascinated with the creative process on this because we're talking about these concepts and they make perfect sense to me. Like you said, it's like hell. You're there. There's no purpose. That's the that's the true hell. Is this? I mean, do, how does this germinate? I mean, is this something you've been thinking about for a long time, or it's just you know, oh, lightning yeah. strikes in the middle of the night and it's like, hey, no, this is this is like I've had a lot of questions about the afterlife for a long time. I think that's because the afterlife wasn't a thing for me growing up. It wasn't a thing in my household. Uh, I was, I'm Jewish, so it wasn't a thing we talked about in synagogue. It was like, Rabbi, what happens when you die? We bury you. What do you think happens? Next question. Uh, so, like, my first, so I never got, like, told heaven and hell, like, as a real thing. So, like, I just saw it, like, in stories and movies, and people told me about what they heard in church. And... Every time I saw, I'm like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. I have so many questions. So it's just like the torture dimension. Why? Why would God make the torture dimension? You cheat on your spouse and you're just tortured forever. <laughs> That's nonsense. It's nonsense. Also, who decides who's good or bad? They thought slavery was A-OK back then. Are you going to get to heaven and be like, and like, they're like fucking like, hey, we're the slavers. Turns out that was still a good thing. Like, whose metric are we on? Who is judging that? I don't, like, honestly, I don't want to go to a heaven determined by like one set, like first century morals. Does it get updated? Does it, do they get revised? Do they go to the slavers who are in heaven and be like, hey, turns out people decided slavery is bad. Off to hell with you now. Like, who's deciding this? The Bible's fucked up. I can't trust that book's ethics. <laughs> it's all about hitting women with jawbones and all sorts of crazy crap. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a lot to. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, gosh, you're talking like, about oh, no, you got, okay, questions that philosophers have talked to you about for thousands of years. And I'm like, that's in it. It's like I can't listen to anybody that tells me to throw dead. Cr I can't listen to any book that tells me to throw dead crows at sick people. Yeah. <laughs> no. That was my bar mitzvah portion. My little sister got to do the story of Noah's Ark. I got a step-by-step -step guide for what to do if you have leprosy. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, so, um, the, more on the business side, because I think you got your MBA, correct? So yeah. So, you, yeah. you kind of know how the business of this works from a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've tried to really understand the business side of it and, you know – Knowledge is power. Uh, but yeah, no, I got my MBA this past May uh, from NYU. And yeah, no, I, it's good, especially because even in business school, you'd see how little is known about the comic book industry. And I think, the, I think a lot more vocal business literacy would help the community. Does this harken back to the days when the publishers would take advantage of artists and not give them credit or compensation for original characters they created? Oh, abso-fucking-lutely. Ain't no one gonna Siegel and Schuster me. 
<laughs> well, plus, I think, I know, especially with uh, smaller press titles, we're starting to see creators that are actually getting more into the business side of it. I'm thinking, for example, Joe Pruitt at uh, Aftershock. And, uh, I think Peter Smitty. I mean, James Pruitt is uh, the publisher at Scout. Right. I work. I work. I work with Joe Pruitt's brother, like at Scout. And yeah, it's true. I forgot about that. And I think Peter Samedi at Alterna. You know, is, so is there an interest? Do you have an interest of maybe getting into that aspect more into the business of being a publisher as well as I creator? Don't have plans or a vision for it right now, but I'm playing the long game. Just because I don't see a need for it at 27 doesn't mean I won't see a need for it at 47. And I'd rather have the knowledge and the info now than need to get it later when I need it. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's better to be prepared. Right now, if I get maybe if I get to the point where I feel like I've accomplished what I want to do creatively and I want to look to do like take on new challenges in the industry. But right now, I'm giving it my all to just get as to just do as much creatively as I can in this medium. Business, business is for get a good day job, so I can keep making comics. Absolutely, well, that's actually no. Well, it's kind of a good segue talking about being creative. Um, I'm not asking you to tip your hand on anything, but do you have any other? Are you? You got any other things in the pipeline right now that'll be coming out uh, um, this year or later this year or next year? Or? So, yeah, because it's not like I have it. So right now my focus is really on Heavenly Blues. There's still a lot of work to go to finish that. Uh, still some writing. And I'm also the letterer on it. So there's so lettering the remaining issues is going to keep me plenty busy. Um, but right now at this point in my career, it's, I'm at the point where I'm still – uh, financing like the actual art because I believe that um, I believe that if I'm going to work with a professional artist it's my responsibility to pay them a professional rate even if it's out of my own pocket and so right now uh, just where I am on the ladder like my stuff is self-financed so that kind of so just resources limits how much I can work on at a time um, but I do have uh, something cooked up with an incredibly, I am cooking something up with an incredibly talented artist named Alexandria Huntington. Uh, and I'm pretty excited for what that, uh, could turn into. Sounds great. So are you doing any of the show circuit? I know you're talking about having the books on the shelf and previews and everything, but yeah. Um, so I pretty much, I'm still kind of burnt out that I did a lot of shows this past kind of this summer. Uh, I did Boston comic con. I did uh, wizard world, Philadelphia, uh, five points comics fest. Uh, I did flame con. Um, I'm, I'm not tabling, but I'm going to SPX this weekend. I've uh, been doing some signings in New York. Uh, what other shows uh, did Baltimore, last year but not doing it but that's also this weekend but not going because again i'm just still just i need rest from the summer uh summer is my real big convention season and my next show will be um i'm gonna be at 
I don't know how much I'll be at New York Comic Con, but I'll definitely be doing a signing at the Scout booth at New York Comic Con. Yeah, I was going to ask, are you going to the uh, cons uh, at the Scout booth, or are you doing it through tabling yourself? So I think I might. I think I, I uh, am going to have a table in the small press area uh, on Sunday, but I think for the most part, uh, the best place to find me will be at, uh, at the Scout booth. Uh, during my uh, whenever my signings end up being scheduled for, you gonna be at E two C two next year? Oh man, I hope so. I was at that last year, and that convention was phenomenal. I love C two E two. I would love to do that convention again. It is a uh, it is great. That seems to be a favorite among a lot of people. Man. It's it's a really well run convention. It's great crowd, great people. It's I had a. Out of fun at C two E two. Dennis and I have a good friend who's going to be at the New York Comic Con. We're going to make sure he comes your way. <laughs> have him sign some stuff. For so, we'll be happy to put the John Hancock on him. Okay, great. Um, I don't have you got anything else, Dennis? You need it. Ah, uh, well, I think we've. We've talked about Shaman. We've talked about Heavenly Blues, kind of the themes and stuff behind it, uh, kind of his thoughts going into it and everything, and some of the stuff he's got in the pipeline and where to find him. Uh, where can people find you? Where can, where can they get him? If they, can't, if they don't have a local comic shop, because you know, I kind of grew in the rural south and didn't really have one, are there alternate ways of doing it? I think you can go to Scout Comics and buy it. I, do you have a Facebook page and other, other places uh, you can to buy it? You can find me at, uh, on Twitter at, at @benthecon. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram at, at @benthecon, uh, and you can find my website www.benconcomics.com. Uh, there's links to buy uh, physical copies or digital copies of Shaman, and also you, there's uh, handy links right to uh, the Scout store where you can buy physical copies straight from the publisher. And don't you have a Etsy shop. I think that you're the first creator I found to have an Etsy shop. Yes, that's right. Uh, I that's that would be the best place to find the Shaman graphic novel, and you can find me at again BenCon Comics on Etsy. Very good. Well, Ben, we really want to thank you for joining us, taking the time out of your schedule to join us uh, and talk with thank us. Thank you so much. I had a blast doing this. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We we're glad to do it, and uh, oh, yeah. we hope to have you again when your next project comes out. Uh, we'd love to do it for sure. Yeah, and I think a, a bunch of us that uh, are on this network I go to E two C two. I didn't go this year, but I'm planning on going next year. So hopefully, maybe I'll see you at E two C two in 2018. That that would be awesome. I would love that. Oh, uh, again, thank you guys so much for having me. Glad to do it. And uh, so yeah, um, again, the first uh, you can contact your local comic shop. Uh, the first two issues of Heavenly Blues are already out. And issue three is out September 27th. And it's a well-done comic. I mean, it's on, it's, it's on very nice paper. This is not, uh, you know, they, Scout's done a good job with this. On oh, yeah. Playing for keeps. Yep. Okay. Very cool. So is that all we got tonight, Jay? That's that's all I've got. All right. Well, we'll be signing off. Um, so I uh, guess we will see you next episode. But yes, thanks for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again. Good night. Good night.
wasn't terrible. That was pathetic. Boo. Nerdy Legion.